You're listening to FemWonk, a podcast about inclusion, policy, politics, and current affairs. I'm your host, Katie Davey. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm joined by Eternity Martis, the author of They Said This Would Be Fun. This book was the May FemWonk book club pick, and I'm so thrilled to chat more with Eternity about some of my thoughts, but also some of the thoughts of the other book club members um, and that the ones that they shared with me. First, I did want to recognize, though, that this book took, I think, a new meaning for many of us um, over these last few days as we start to see really this explicit violence against Black people in both the U.S. and Canada and the protesting against this racism and discrimination. You know, hearing and amplifying Black voices remains critical for us, and I, I think we were recentered in that. It's also an opportunity for many of us to reflect on how we've perpetuated and contributed to anti-Black racism over the, over the course of our lives, both intentionally and unintentionally, and do the work to learn and unlearn. So, Eternity, I just want to say I'm really grateful to be having this conversation with you today, and I'm excited to discuss the book a little bit further. So thank you again for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So the first thing I actually want to talk about is the fact that you wrote a book. It's amazing. And, you know, I think I often reflect this almost ivory tower of book writing. Tell me a bit about the process in in really kind of achieving this big shiny object for so many. Yeah, I think I felt the same way. I think I felt that, like, how would I get into that ivory tower of book writing? And, um, you know, one thing for me, at least, I've always wanted to write a book since I think I was about eight or nine years old. And on the other hand, all the advice I was getting, all the books and stuff I read were like, yeah, you're not going to write a book. Chances are, like, doesn't matter. You're never going to write a book. Um, And I just didn't really like that kind of negative tone of like, book like this whole keeping of books like who are the keepers of books why why couldn't I get up there um and then while I was at Western we read so many so much uh, like so many of the canon canon literature um in, during my English degree and I'm like I don't see books that represent anything that I'm into so to be able to write this book um was kind of just a leap of faith it just kind of felt like I really needed to do it I, I am a journalist and while I was at Western, I was thinking of becoming a journalist after I graduated. And it just felt like the people around me were having such similar experiences to mine. It had to be put in a book. Like I had tried so many different formats. I tried a blog under a pen name. I tried a play while I was at Western. I tried a novel and I'm like, no, this has to be real. Like it has to be real life. So I wrote some stuff, uh, did my master's at Ryerson in journalism when I graduated from Western, met my editor Haley, um, and we were just talking. I was like, I have this idea. And even at the time, I don't think we were still talking about race the same way we are today. And I just really believed in it. I'm like, I will just try. Like, what is the point of not trying? So it was all really just a leap of faith. It's kind of like, for me, like writing a book is this, like I said, big shiny object. And it's like, okay, how do you do it? Well, you become a national journalist who is old and is white and a man. Well, yeah, yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of tough for me. So yeah, I, you know, and, and I think as well, I'm looking for these types of books. So there is that amazing audience and I'm, yeah, I'm so happy. I'm so happy to have your book. What about the imposter syndrome though? Did that show up for you? Totally. Um, I, I think that when you think about books in the same way as you, Katie, you like, 
you think about like, oh, it comes with all these things. Like I'm going to have a massive social media following. I'm going to go to red carpet events and all this stuff. And like, I mean, I also got like knocked off my ass by a pandemic. So all that went like up in flames. But um, like I did along the way, like, I don't think that there was anybody, at least in Canada, who was writing something similar to what I was writing. And so it felt really hard. Like I struggled a lot with different types of imposter syndrome. I struggled as a like a mixed race person and worrying about not being black enough to write this book. I worried about uh, my own writing skills. Like after being, especially like in journalism, in, in this industry, you're told you're writing, your work is never good enough. So I worried about what I was writing. I worried about coming off too preachy or and even not even knowing what I was doing, which is so common because we tend to doubt ourselves so much when we're told that like our our truths aren't real. And so I was dealing with imposter syndrome on every single level. Um, but I think the only thing that really broke through that was that, again, I knew so many people who had gone through so many things and I was given the platform to be able to talk about them. So that's what really kept me writing. So the folks in the Femmon Book Club will know all about your book, but for folks who are listening who don't, Tell me, or tell us, I guess, tell us about the book. What can we look forward to? I say we, I, I know what I look forward <laughs> to. <laughs> what can others look forward to? So this is a book, it's a memoir in essays, which basically means that like every chapter, it does move the story along, but it's pretty nonlinear. Every chapter has a theme. And so this book is about my experience at Western being a woman and a student of color at a predominantly white university and experiencing a range of racial, uh, racial racist, sexist um, issues. And that's from, you know, going to a blackface party, um, you know, dealing with um, like racial slurs, being the token in the classroom. But also it's more than that. It's really about what, like, what it means to be a young person and be a student and have to like grow up while all of this is happening to you and your body. So while the book is about race, it's also a lot about what it means to be a woman and a young woman. Like um, I tackle sexual assault on campus, which is one of the most prevalent crimes on campus. I talk about intimate partner violence, which is also a really prevalent crime on campus, but we don't talk about. Um, and sisterhood and the importance of friendship and sisterhood for your survival, for Black women's survival. So it's really a book about everything. Um, and really it's all under like coming into your own identity. The part about the intimate partner violence really resonated with a few of our book club members. Um, I think kind of the framing of like, we put this issue into a box and if you don't fit that box, i.e. you're not, you know, a married heterosexual couple, then it doesn't exist. And to your point, there are so many relationships, um, both kind of formal and informal on many of our campuses where, you know, inner partner violence is real and that is the definition and that is what people are experiencing. But when you don't see yourself reflected in like the resources or if you don't actually know if the resources exist, um, you know, from my experience being on in a kind of student leadership role on campus, I don't, I don't remember like, I really don't know that we had actual specific like inner partner violence. We definitely had, um, you know, sexual violence um, resources, but I don't remember having inner partner and that, yeah, that really resonated with uh, many folks in the book club for sure. Yeah. And it's in, in the book I mentioned, you know, when you go for like your checkup, they have like the stir ups on the table where it says like on the little stir up gloves, it says like abuse, you can talk to me. And I would think like, well, what kind of abuse are we talking about? Because as you said, like it's sexual assault uh, supports are around campus, but never 
it, like partner violence uh, or physical violence or emotional abuse or cyber stalking. So I still think, and in talking to so many experts, people on campus, professors, it still really is an issue. There really are no places to go when you're experiencing IPD on campus. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about your approach as well is that you you chose um, various styles throughout the book, which I really enjoyed. Um, you had, you know, the letter to Joshua. Uh, you had the Greek tragedy, which again was, yes. was, you know, it like using those and employing those different tools, I thought was really, um, you know, creative and kind of a fun way to experience your voice in a different way. It, tell me about that decision. I am a big a uh, fan of the, if you want to write, you need to read. But I used to reject it completely because I would hear it from like, you know, white professors and I just did not believe it, but it's true. And so when I started fully committing to this book, I'm like, I need to write, I need to read memoirs, I need to read bios. And one thing I noticed was in certain books, such as um, like Sachi's book, Sachi Cole's book, One Day We'll All Be Dead and Now This Will Matter. Um, she has different styles in there. And Morgan Jerkins, This Will Be My Doing, there were so many different little styles that I enjoyed. And even, you know, Sloane Crosley, um, those types of styles all kind of, they made literature fun in a way that we're told we're not allowed to be fun with, right? Like writing in all caps or having lists in your book, in your memoir, like all those are huge no-nos. And I wanted to kind of play with that, I think. I think it breaks up the heaviness of the text, um, especially when the interstitials, um, which I have a different format for the page breaks there. But um, I just wanted to go against different rules. Um, and even a lot of the book, like the writing itself is nonlinear. Like in one chapter, we're going from like my childhood to present to teen me. And I just think that the gatekeepers of language have forced us all to kind of like write books that, that, that adhere to the English language and the style. And I just really wanted to play with that. Our experiences aren't linear, right? Like, so to try to write a memoir that paints that kind of linear path, it, you know, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because that's not how we experience life at all. And, you know, I think what I loved was that, you know, you had kind of these overarching themes, um, but yeah, you would kind of essentially explain the different ways how that kind of theme impacted you at different periods in your life, um, which again, I think is interesting and important to demonstrate how we're always kind of learning both about ourselves and about, you know, the world around us. So yeah, I, I really appreciated that, that approach. Um, you know, the, the, as, as we've mentioned, this book is a memoir and you say early in the book that you don't want to hold anything back. And you know, I was struck by how really open and honest and quite frankly brave you were in, in kind of the content in this uh, memoir. That must have been difficult for you. I, I was reflecting honestly as I was reading and thinking how, how difficult that would be for me to be that vulnerable. So tell me a bit about that decision and, and what that was like. I never really... I just think where I write things and then they get published and then I'm like, oh, wow, that was like, that was a lot. Like it happens, it happens all the time. Um, and, you know, sometimes people will come up to me and be like, that's a, that was a really brave thing to do. But to me, it, it's, it's not brave or it's not courageous. It's just, I feel like there's this kind of like urge to tell these stories. And I think that wasn't the issue for me to be up there, uh, out there. I think the issue was to be vulnerable 
with it. Um, I would rather pay like millions of dollars and talk about my feelings. So to write a book about my feelings was really, and, and, and to be received hopefully in a, in a good way that people understood was really nerve wracking. But it felt like I, it just felt like I had to, like these experiences had been pushed down for so long. Universities weren't listening. Black women were being ignored. Um, when I was writing this book, I had talked to women who went to Western or McGill or U of T in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and it was the same story. And I was like, this book hasn't come out yet. And I do understand that there are so many different ways of engaging with this conversation, whether you're an active listener or you're on the front lines. And to me, my contribution to that was writing a book where I could be really honest um, and give readers what they needed to feel comforted and have information, but also not disrespecting myself by um, revealing everything. Right. And I, you know, I think, and I think you actually mentioned it at a couple of points as well in the book, like, again, if we talk about telling these stories and telling different stories than we're seeing and reading, part of that is telling the whole story in a way, right? It's not just telling the good. It is including, you know, like we all have done, like our partying days in university and things like that, and not shying away because society still tells us that, you know, if you do those things, you're not going to be taken seriously. And, and all of those layers, I guess, um, what it, you know, I think what it does is it can perpetuate this, this shame that, you know, people will feel when they're reading these stories and not seeing themselves or not seeing that full experience. So yeah, I, I, I was particularly yeah. struck by that. Thank you. And I think, you know, for the, for the Joshua chapter and the, the at all costs chapter where we're talking, where I'm talking about being, you know, um, a survivor of intimate partner violence and sexual assault, like my biggest fear was, was being victim blamed. Um, and because we all are, but it just felt, and you know, in the, in the sexual assault chapter, I don't really go into it that much, but it just felt like I had to say something when everyone else in this moment is speaking up, like to stop the conversation and to be able to be a part of the conversation as a black woman, like I had to say something. Yeah, that actually leads really well into honestly, the reasons why I was initially attracted to this book. So there, there really are two reasons why I was drawn. And one of the main ones is actually, you know, as, as a former, uh, the former president of the University of New Brunswick Student Union, I spent a lot of time doing internal and external advocacy. And I honestly kind of wanted to see how wrong I got it. Like I wanted to be able to hear and learn about your experience and reflect on the, the role, um, you know, I guess the, I played in in some cases in you know New Brunswick on that campus, um, and you know one of the things that was interesting to me is you you know there's quite a bit again as you just mentioned about sexual violence and intimate partner violence in in only 2015 when I was president, um, you know UNB at the time did not have a sexual violence policy it had nothing and so you know that's five or six years ago at this point but. It's also crazy to think just five or six years ago, they had nothing. And that was, you know, one of the uh, things I'm, I'm still most proud of getting kind of in place. But, but even still, once it existed, then, you know, the work had to start kind of happening on, is this appropriate? Are the pathways correct? Are, are people experiencing, you know, like, how might people experience this system differently and, and kind of all of that work? Um, so it, you know, I think was a really interesting and early lesson for me in advocacy, which was 
just getting the policy is not good enough. Um, and, you know, un unfortunately, it was a one year position. So the policy was was then I was kind of on the way out. Um, but yeah, I think I was reflecting again on on that learning, you know, the policy is not enough. It's understanding how it impacts different folks and how different folks will experience the system. That actually is what what matters. Um, and, you know, that that kind of leads me this, the second piece of why I was so drawn to this book was, again, you know, trying to understand better and, and really seek out those intersectional perspectives that that I just don't have and that I'm not going to have. Um, you know, I, I think that's so important for me. And and so to your point, you know, this book, although there are many things where, where we won't be able to relate on, I was still able to see a young woman in university and those experiences and relate in many ways to some of um, you know, some of those parallels, which, which I appreciated, but it also made me appreciate the ways that I can't relate. Um, and honestly, you know, like I, like I said, kind of off the top over these past few days and weeks or, or days, particularly the book has had really a quite, quite a different meaning for me. And, you know, I, I'd really like to hear your thoughts on, on where your book kind of does fit in this current conversation. And to your point, you know, how it highlights that this is not an issue that started a week ago. It is an issue that has been continued and perpetuated. Um, I Sorry, I, I just feel like I unloaded a lot there. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna, but yeah, but I, sorry, sorry about that. But yeah, it just, it uh, really impacted me a lot. So, um, but I, yeah, I would really love to have a bit of a conversation about the the time we're in at this moment. Yeah, of course. And I think um, just to, to address your, your point about, uh, you know, things that we were able to, things in the book that you were able to um, relate to, and then other things that you learned. And to me, that was the whole point of it. And I've said this so many times, but, you know, your book is never um, perceived, in, for the most part, in ways that you hope it will be. And I think my book has been overshadowed by it being a book on race. And to me, my book is very much a feminist text. Like, it's very much about, um, anybody who is in a position like this and dealing with violence and, and dealing with oppression and what happens to your body and your mind and your spirit when you're broken by oppression. That's what, you know, I think we all, in, under different circumstances, uh, we all experience that. And, you know, the book now in, like, in the current climate that we're at and the book, you know, inside my book, I talk about this, I talk about um, Black Lives Matter and I talk about us racial tensions boiling over. When I graduated, it was 2014. And two months later, uh, Black Lives Matter had really kind of burst on a global scene. So I wrote about a time that we're in again. Like, it's crazy to me. And so, um, one, it's exhausting, because I literally just said, like, that was the moment, and then here's the moment again. But um, I think this book serves to address the other issues that will come out once um, the, the dust settles like okay everyone is angry okay rightfully you know burn it down um start again but what happens then what are we doing for people what are we doing for black people's mental health after these discussions um and the emotional labor we're all doing by talking about this by by writing about it um what's going to happen to black students how will this lead there's still so much white supremacy on campuses like white pride flyers everywhere students being harassed what are we going to do about that what are we going to do about black women who are 
um, at the highest risk um, in terms of uh, between white women compared to white women of intimate partner violence and sexual assault on campus. What are we going to do there? Why are black women still not getting the same kind of attention when it comes to protests that black men do? So there's, there's so much work to be done. And I think when it comes to students, not necessarily in terms of university, we've seen younger students, um, you know, being thrown out of classrooms, arrested by police for, for near nothing, for being children, their mothers banned from their schools for, for standing up for their children. So I think this conversation is on the come up, um, but we need to understand how all the issues happening now permeate into the institution of the education system and what happens when young people are exposed to this while they're still growing up. Because right now, this next generation of, of young people, they need our support. They need, they need our guidance. And um, I don't think we're paying enough attention to them. Yeah, I think that um, relates actually really interestingly to a point that was brought up during our book club discussion that resonates so resonated rather so much with me. And it was, um, you know, one of the participants said, uh, before I started reading this book, I was kind of expecting to see, you know, a number or many, um, you know, microaggressions. And, and that was kind of what the real focus and highlight would be because, you know, I think we have a hard time um, conceptualizing and understanding the actual violence that still exists. And then when I read the book and saw all of the explicit race-based violence and harassment, I was, I was shocked. And it reminded me that as we move through this world differently, as allies and as bystanders in these situations, we might see a comment or, you know, again, a microaggression. It seems like this one-off or it seems like something small to us, but to the person experiencing that violence, it is not. And when we let things slide and, and not call out and not be allies and then say we're surprised to see what's going on, it's just very, you know, disingenuous. And it, again, I think it just, I think that point really solidified and reminded me that, you know, allyship has to be all the time and should be all the time. And these instances of, you know, death by a thousand cuts exist and, you know, there's a way that we can kind of move forward and support. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting point, I thought, and I think really prevalent and meaningful at this moment in time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, people, people are really quick to say, even our own friends, like, you know, like, uh, who want to be allies and may not see that death, as you said, like a death by a thousand cuts. Um, I kind of think of it as like, you know, if your body is inflamed, no matter what you do, if you don't fight the inflammation, you're just, it's going to end up the same way. And so I think like when you've experienced a certain amount of um, exposure to racist acts or behaviors, or you're witnessing, uh, you know, black people being killed in videos looping on your timeline, it all really adds up in a way that no one can understand. And I think that I, even I, as the writer and experience it, did not understand until I wrote this book. Um, the actual first drafts were actually really humorous. And because I thought it was fine. I had no idea like just how dark these things were. Um, but then when I look back on it and I think about the research into like the well-established research that like 
um, experiencing racism or just even the thought of experiencing racism can really kill you. It can, it can cause hypertension, depression, anxiety, different types of cancers and diseases. So really it will kill you. And so I think like to be constantly exposed to it, what people don't understand is that it could be one comment. It could be, a, it could be a comment about your hair. It could be, a, it could be just that you shared a video of someone or you left something unchecked. It all contributes to the, the suffering and pain that you're already experiencing. The, the piece about allyship is, is interesting and important because again, I think from my perspective, I'm, I'm always learning and I'm always like, I guess, unlearning as well. And I think the, what is so important to me or what I have found to be, sorry, rather important to me is actually hearing the stories, right? And, you know, reading this book was one of those examples. Um, I was, I was actually really surprised as well. Um, A friend of mine, I wanted to amplify his voice as an Atlantic Canadian Um, and and he is a fellow Atlantic Canadian who's doing some really incredible work. And I sent him a note first and asked, you know, are you okay if I kind of tweet uh, to amplify your voice, but also um, how are you doing? You know, this is, must be tough. I know Atlantic Canada is not the most friendly to racialized folks and, and I'm sure you're experiencing this really difficultly. And he told me I was the first person that actually reached out to him. And that reminded me again that, you know, sharing posts on Instagram is not always the best way to actually be an ally. And we were kind of placating ourselves in a way. And so it was it was another perfect example to me as well that there's so much we can do individually, right? Like we can't change the world overnight, but there's so many things we can individually do. Yeah, I think it, it, it's kind of, yeah, I guess a call for action to to just do more of that rather than feel overwhelmed by what we can't do. So yeah, it's um, like I was just talking to a friend about this today. Everybody is feeling like they're not doing enough. And I think everyone is also feeling like what they're doing is wrong. Um, I think we've seen like the Blackout Tuesday thing with the square, with the black square. And everyone was like, hey, guys, this is a great idea. And then it happened. And then people were angry that like people had black squares the the hashtag makes completely complete sense because um you know it takes away when you would be the algorithm takes away from people who need resources um but then everyone was getting upset that people posted black squares even without the hashtag and you know and for allies um checking in with your friends leaving a note and then you know people are like well that's not enough uh, or donating and not donating donating enough and um i just feel like at this moment this is new for us again. It feels new for us again. Everyone is trying their best. We're going to make mistakes. And this anger like towards each other should be directed towards the people we need to be real angry about. Like, what about governments? What about police? What about, let's talk about defunding the police. Let's talk about, um, about government accountability. Like that's where we need to target the anger. But I think there's just so much confusion and hurt and pain right now that we're turning, we're, we're turning it to each other. But I hope that like we can get to a place where let's turn that around, you know, let's still learn. Allies still need to learn and and we will do all those things. But also let's focus on the more important issue for actual change right at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, so much of this is exasperated by the fact that we're living in a global pandemic, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and not only that, but that you know, I, you made a point as well in the book, which I really appreciated about the um, race-based data on campus, 
um, and the lack of that kind of disaggregated data. And, you know, we're seeing that play out as well in COVID and the responses and how different communities are experiencing um, this pandemic. And so, you know, there's, there's all of these conversations playing out at the same time. And I think at your point, it's being exasperated and, um, you know, people are just really at a breaking point in so many cases. And yeah, I think moving forward with empathy and understanding is, is really so important. One thing I'd love to ask though, a final thing is if, if we loved this book, what, uh, what's, what are some other books that we can pick up? What, what's on your reading recommendation list? Ooh, great question. Um, so on my reading recommendation list um, is definitely anything by Bell Hooks. Um, I loved, um, I believe the title is Black Looks and Representation. I think it came out in 92. Um, obviously, Audre Lorde, Sister Outsider. Um, current, More current books, Alicia Elliott's A Mind Spread Out on the Ground is phenomenal. Kai Ching Tom's I Hope We Choose Love really great book of essays. Uh, yeah, I, I think those are some good starts. I have many, I think I did a, a thread a couple of months ago, of just like all the books I love. Uh, but there are so many. And I think, you know, for me, writing this book, I was deeply, deeply inspired by like the second wave feminists, uh, like black feminists, queer feminists, um, who kind of blaze the path. So if you're even into like, ac more academic types of, of books, um, they will teach you a lot about what we're going through right now, what we're seeing. It's been, it's happened so many times and um, those are also great books. Well, again, thank you so much, Eternity. Just a reminder, folks, the book that we read this week, rather sorry this month, is they said this would be fun. It's excellent. You should go and pick it up immediately. I mean, I guess don't pick it up, order it. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, that's, yeah, that's a wrap on our chat today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for sticking with us. I want to thank our sponsor, Glass Sky. Glass Sky works to help the next generation of leaders make the most of their talents and contributions to society and the workplace in powerful ways. They work with progressive employers who want to embrace diversity and gain a deeper understanding of the changes they're facing as their leadership profiles rapidly shift to one of millennial and increasingly female. Visit their website, glassguy.org, to learn more. And if you liked this episode, share it. You can connect with us on social media at Femwalk, and I'll see you next time.